Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SAS pod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. We are joined today by Munia Palmik, whose work covers race, colonialism and sexuality, queer feminist theory and democracy, equality and citizenship. This year, she's a faculty fellow at the Stanford Humanities Center. And then as soon as the COVID restrictions have lifted, she will be off to India to take up a Fulbright Fellowship. In today's podcast, I will be asking her about her project at Stanford, as well as her wider research. Munia, thank you so much for joining me on the SASPod. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you, Lalita, as well as one can be right now. Seriously. <laughs> yes, for those of you listening in later, because not everybody gets to the podcast uh, as soon as uh, it comes out, uh, we are recording Oct- October 23rd. So that gives people a bit of a sense of the world we're living in right now. Yes, 2020, the year 2020. The year 2020, indeed. Now, um, I always like to start off by asking my guests to just tell us a little bit more about their research and also please uh, tell us a little bit more about what you will be focusing on while you're at Stanford. Well, thank you. Thank you for your interest. Um, Let me just say um, thanks to the South Asia Center for um, South Asia Studies at Stanford and the Stanford Humanities Center. I have had... um, such a good time already in terms of uh, the discussions and presentations that I've heard. Um, They've been incredible. So thank you very much for taking this time. Thanks. That's lovely to hear. I appreciate that. Um, No, really. Um, uh, My research, um, it takes place at the intersection of literature. I'm primarily and trained as a literary scholar, Um, but I interface literature with a number of other disciplines. Uh, including political theory, continental philosophy, um, and 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 um, feminist theory, um, and um, li- literatures in various languages. So I work in English um, from the 19th century, but also Latin American literature. And um, I'm not a, sa- a South Asianist by specialization, uh, but I do work in South Asian language texts as well. Um, and really it's all, it, even though it works in all these kind of um, fragmented ways, um, really it's driven by one question. And that is why are some residents of a country entitled to full citizenship rights? And why are others denied those very rights? Or why does even formal citizenship, let's say you have a passport, you are formally recognized, legally recognized as a citizen, but you are not fully seen as an equal before the law, despite this formal recognition of citizenship. So this is the main question that um, 
drives uh, me to look at these various texts and disciplines. I think it's an interdisciplinary question. Um, on some level, it's a question that we shouldn't even have to discuss. It should, it's not a question that should even exist because everyone should be a full recognized citizen right. um, with equal bearing before the law. Um, but in, despite this fact, the, the, it is the question of the lack of citizenship, not the provision of citizenship, that has come to define the history of the modern nation state in some ways. Um, so one way I'm approaching this question is not through quantitative data-driven models, but through literature, actually, um, and specifically through poetry. So let, for instance, we know, for instance, that there's 11 million non-citizens in the United States. This was a statistic quoted last night um, at the pre U.S. presidential debate. Um, we know that there are 65 millions, million refugees globally. But the scale of the numbers and the data collection has not prompted, even the citation of the statistic yesterday, um, has not necessarily prompted any kind of affective response. It's not prompted any kind of uh, emotive response um, on a governmental level where we can actually say that everyone has equality before the law. So what I'm doing in my research and training is I'm trying to think through um, literature um, and these political governmental issues. Um, and I mixed questions of democracy and citizenship studies with poetry. And I think that in some ways we find some really compelling answers in places that we don't ever, ever one would be not expect to find um, in the writings of Franz Kafka, in Dostoevsky, um, in some of the essays by Rabindranath Tagore and a number of other South Asian um, writers and in the writings of Herman Melville, a 19th century um, American writer, um, writing during a very pivotal moment in this nation's history. And I think it's in their kind of wayward, literary, ambiguous, sometimes maverick, um, renegade, uh, you know, one could say queer texts that we find hidden resources for explicating why we have a crisis of citizenship rights, even today. Already is so much. Thank you so much. There's so much to talk about and I'll try and keep us somewhat on track uh, and uh, keep this somewhat focused. But I just want to ask a real 101 question because I know in your work you talk a lot about Melville. Um, so can you just explain to us a little bit more why he is so important? Sure. So, um, of course, as many um, listeners and readers everywhere will know, Herman Melville is the author of a magnum opus called Moby Dick, um, which was published in 1850 uh, in the United States. Um, and of course, this book has now become recognized as a kind of American classic. Um, it's also understood as just a classic of literature in many ways. Although at the time it was, it was did not have a very uh, a strong commercial response. Melville's writings were really not recognized until various 20th, 20th century um, receptions of his work. Uh, but the reason that I turn to Melville is because I think that he, he, not he as in the author, but his scenes, his, his um, invocation of ambiguity, irony, and tragedy um, in, in, a, in a novel that could also be a movie script and has been um, 
um, in uh, um, by and, and television uh, script. Uh, but you find the condition of what millions of non-citizens, what I was addressing before when you asked what my research was. Um, you find the condition of non-citizens and maybe some ways in which a, a national imaginary asserts itself through constructions of non-citizens. Um, for example, in the novels and short stories um, of this very revered writer, um, it's, we actually find mostly non-citizens, not citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's some kind of unconscious um, uh, uh, bond in some ways that um, that Melville's stories evoke. Um, it's not unlike what um, the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas talks about um, about uh, a, a bond with uh, with the other. Um, it's not unlike what Edward Said talks about in his um, famous reading of Freud in um, Freud and the Non-European. Um, so what I'm trying to do is show that even though this there's a nationalist appropriation sometimes of Moby Dick, um, we we find um, really the question not of the rights of the self, but of the rights of the other. Um, and it's true also of other texts of this period um, um, that are now claimed very patriotically um, and ero- erroneously claimed patriotically because the right the writings themselves are not patriotic writings. Um, they're very literary and very philosophical. Um, you in, in Walt Whitman's songs, in Henry David Thoreau's Walden, and these classically kind of American texts. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ralph Waldo Emerson's essays. It's really not about patriotism and American patriotism. It's it's this question of what are the rights of the other? So this crisis of citizenship that you talk about seems (laughs) incredibly pertinent. Um, Can you say more how the politics of identification then play out across centuries, but also across continents? Um, Sure. Uh, Well, part of what interests me, and this is um, uh, um, part of the work that I'm undertaking here with very generous um, 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 guidance and um, atmosphere um, from at the Stanford Humanities Center, um, is is the work on how this question of what I look at, uh, Hannah Arendt, for instance, who read Melville, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, speaks of uh, the... uh, statelessness as the condition of a right to have rights. Um, But this is not just something that is uh, the condition of um, uh, the Jewish minority in uh, in Europe, for instance, but also is something that has touched the post-colonial world. Um, um, Amir Mufti in his book and reading of Arendt in uh, The Enlightenment and the Colony, for instance, finds a very particular passage in Arendt's writings on how she mentions um, partition and sees partition as connected to the crisis of, of, of rights. And he has he has written about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of what interests me in the, the book that I'm putting together is the question of how poetry um, figures um, in, um, in uh, um, and the question of the right to write, have rights um, impacts a body of poetry that is crossing from Latin America 
um, in the early 20th century during pivotal moments in decolonization. Uh, is crossing through uh, Spanish language poems, is crossing through South African literature, and is crossing through Bengali literature, Urdu literature um, of, the, of the first half of the 20th century before independence. And it's very interesting to me um, that the, there's a series of identifications that are found um, between these poets. They're reading each other's work, um, they're translating, they're traveling, Neruda traveled and spent time um, in South and Southeast Asia. He was at um, some of the largest mobilizations, anti-colonial mobilizations, and he returned um, frequently, even after the establishment of a notion state. So what I'm trying to evaluate and consider moving from the figuration of the non-citizen in this American classic and in the American context of the 19th century uh, body of writings that I mentioned is this a poetic desire um, that's not predicated on a national desire, but for world citizenship, not for national citizenship, but for world citizenship. Um, Tagore, for instance, um, and it's better understood in the original um, uh, terms that's written in Bengali of Vishoshaito, um, uh, which is the word for world literature in an essay that translates as world literature. It, this isn't a, an essay just about literature. It's also about citizenship. Um, and it's this essay um, where he invokes um, through a very uh, oblique poetic reference, an idea of world citizenship. Now, there are political theorists also now, James Tully, for instance, who's writing about world citizenship. So how does poetry turn us back to some questions about what it means to be in the world, right? Um, Arendt would write of um, this, the notion of being in the world. Edward Said would talk about um, the worldliness of being itself. Um, so those are some of the questions that I think poetry prompts us to think about and especially denationalizing um, and even to some extent de-regionalizing, although the region is not the nation and right. is a provocative concept um, in itself. But, um, uh, but thinking about these poems and what was the aspiration? What was the aspirate? What was the political, what were the political ideals that were involved in these translations? Um, so it's not just an account of the circulation, but really kind of what is um, maybe a body of philosophy, we can say, that has not been recognized as a philosophical um, body of thought. So you talk about many different authors, thinkers, poets uh, across, uh, across languages, and I I assume you have access to many of those languages yourself, but perhaps not all. And uh, the people you are writing for uh, perhaps are not able to go to the original work and have another look at what was said. Um, so, and and as a as a language person myself, I'm always curious about this question: how how important but also treacherous are translations, and and how do questions of language? So, there's a translation piece. Like, can you really quote unquote translate the thoughts? Uh, but then also there's the politics of language. So how do questions of language enter that space of belonging? I guess this, these are kind of question A and B. I'm not sure if they're completely connected um, because one is more about the, the, the politics perhaps of language itself. Uh, but the first question is more about how do you actually uh, translate that? 
Yeah, I mean, these are um, excellent and difficult questions, right? Um, uh, I, I'm not asserting that um, there can only be a certain um, truth found in the original reading of the original text. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's um, so that is no one should feel um, that they can't read a text because they don't read the original language in which the writer was writing. Um, it's part of my training as a literature um, scholar um, who is tr- trained also to think comparatively, right? The idea of comparative literature, which is sometimes bound to the idea of world literature, um, which has a long history going back to Goethe um, and different various um, assertions of, 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 of world making, right? Um, and, but it, it, you know, to think also about what is the gap between different languages and what is the work of actually being a translator uh, um, also. Um, so in part, I'm also translating um, in, this, in this book, right? This is not necessarily everyone that reads the Tagore um, in, in, in the Bengali will agree with me at all. So there's disagreement about that um, as well, but it's, um, but there is something productive also about thinking about the gesture of translation, right? Um, the actual um, importance of thinking mul- through multi- a multilingual lens and the politics of multilingualism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of the macro answer to your question about, um, yes, look, translations are treacherous and difficult, but it's in some of what's, um, you know, said in one language and cast differently, but still remains, there remains a trace of what's said in that language that is really provocative to think about. Um, the other thing is, of course, also there's the linguistic question, grammatical questions that are actually political questions. So who is the first person? Who is the second person? Who can appear in the text? Who doesn't appear in the text and lingers in, in the margins? And so let me just bring this back a little bit to talking about translation in our own times and how it relates um, to very, very, really urgent questions, um, just of the capacity to even live fully a full, full, the rightful right to just live, right? Something we're facing right now. And translation and linguistics may seem like the least important thing as we're confronting just bodily, questions of of threat of bodily existence um, with with the pandemic. Um, But we see, we know that actually um, the right to translation is is very much bound to this question of what Arendt called the right to have rights. Um, We know here, in the state of California in the early 90s, a proposition was proposed and passed in 1998, which blamed and banned bilingual education in the classroom for students for whom English is not the first language. Um, and you know, uh, I, I, I should reveal that I, I did grow up here. I went to school here um, from elementary school onward in the state of California. Um, and I know for from um, uh, just, um, you know, going to public schools here, but also teaching in the public school system and organizing that it took until 2016, nearly 20 years later, for this proposition to be reversed in what is mostly a, definitely not just an English speaking state, Um, you know, and the banning of Spanish language instruction um, in the state, which was first, um, you know, 
a sovereign place of indigenous Californians who spoke multiple languages uh, before the Spanish empire. And second itself was part of Mexico um, until people of Mexican descent became suddenly quasi citizens with the passage of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. So, um, you know, non-English Asian languages are also a huge part of the students who attend public schools here. Yeah. So Proposition 20, 20, 20, um, 206 um, sought to impose a single language and it made it even made it illegal for teachers who who themselves were raised in non-English speaking households and were now teachers of bilingual students to not speak that other language in the classroom. Um, so this really brought me to thinking about how translation impacts citizenship rights, how it's connected to the vilification of non-citizens, um, and how different languages, um, you know, are, um, there's racial codes and classifications that also become part of a doctrine of monolingualism um, that doesn't really enfranchise, but rather restricts citizenship. I can go on, Lolita, so I don't want to do that. Um, so I, I, I can I have many more examples. So please feel free to interrupt me and ask any questions. Thank you, thank you for, um, I'm, I'm, I'm um, while I'm listening to you, I'm reflecting on what you just shared about Prop 206. I had no idea and, and as soon as uh, we are done talking, I'm gonna look that up. And I, I imagine that some of our audience, because uh, many of our listeners are not in the state of California or are like myself, a new import into the state of California, had no idea because I think of California, or I think we think of California as a, um, a place where that perhaps would not happen. We would associate that kind of uh, that kind of single language policy and quite repressive uh, uh, policies to not be part of the landscape here. So, for a multitude of reasons, I am, uh, uh, yeah, very very surprised. And thank you for sharing that and also how that comes into your work now. Yeah, um, let me just say quickly: it was repealed in yes. twenty fifteen. Um, and that was part of a long um, uh, organizing effort uh, that is a larger organizing effort on what on a pathway to citizenship and citizenship rights. That is, I mean, you already mentioned that it was repealed and that's uh, that's good news, but it, uh, 2016 is uh, is scarily recent, right? It's <laughs> yes. yes, well, it's a whole generation, right? I mean, nearly 20 years of, of, of students who were not allowed to be taught um, in that language. And in, you know, there is in, in the United States a lack of um, really early education um, multilingual train, um, teaching. Right. So, um, um, for instance, I know in um, in South Asia, many students uh, are fluent in written, spoken and script, um, um, you know, by the fourth grade. In multiple languages, yeah. you mean? Yes. Yeah. And, and I, I would argue it's the same in Europe in, for other reasons. Um, but, you know, there is a kind of an awareness that other languages are uh, important and, and uh, need to be learned. Um, so, OK, while we're on language and um, although there are, of course, uh, speakers of many, many different languages uh, in California, Spanish is, of course, uh, a big language. And I'm always reflecting on that. And uh, my colleague Rowan Cantor also spoke about that uh, at Stanford, uh, the, the way that... Um, authors and politicians in Latin America 
um, look towards South Asia uh, in terms of the use of Hindi uh, mm-hmm. and how complicated that actually is. I mean, Hindi itself is so complicated, but yeah. also there is really no parallel. So um, is Spanish to Latin America as English is to South Asia or, and I know what the answer is already, uh, is it more complicated than that? I know that's not really a yes, no question, but but tell us a little bit more about how that plays out in your work. Again, it's, it's, it's a tough but important question. Um, I think that it's definitely the point of a comparative framing and um, it also includes South Africa. Um, so it's really this idea of going um, trying to reevaluate what were a kind of tricontinental um, um, uh, uh, a, a tricontinental conversation um, that also included African America, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, um, during a pivotal moment of decolonization. So the comparative framing of this, these authors and intertextual um, exchanges that happened is not really just to pose an analogy, right? Um, Between Spanish to Latin America is what English is to South Asia. Um, We know as you already um, allude to in your question um, um, is that each language and each imperial iteration is specific. Um, And um, especially when you're invoking huge geographic and linguistic categories, right? Um, Spanish is, um, as is English, is also creolized. So Latin America, I mean, it's not just derivative of Castellano, right? Of, right. Uh, uh, um, but it's, um, but it's um, uh, um, mixing with indigenous words um, in some parts, in other parts, a lot of Italian. Um, in the United States, Spanish is is a minority language in many ways, um, 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 and. In the English, in the Caribbean, in various parts of South Asia, um, it's also creolized. Um, and um, so it, I don't think it's a dismissal of texts because they're written in Spanish or English from the South Asian or Latin American context um, that they're no longer, that they're simply just a replica of a colonial um, um, ideology, right? They still text written, Anglophone texts and, um, uh, Hispanophone texts um, leave an important body of, of writings um, that also critique English dominance. Um, so I think it's more a question again. I goes I think goes back to what what are these authors specifically doing um, uh, that uh, works um, that is questioning the dominance of monolingualism right. and in some way seeking to subvert the power of the imperial control over just language itself and the the ability to use language itself, right? Um, and so part of why I'm looking at how they were, I mean, and these are not some, some are not very well known. For instance, Gabriela Mistral, who's a very important Latin American poet, um, revised, to, I mean, re, re-translated and printed several of Tagore's um, versions of Gitanjali in Spanish. Uh, Mistral's poems are, of course, on their own, um, you know, a towering body of, of poetry. Um, it's often not very known that Jose Lezama Lima, who is a major um, philosopher, Cuban philosopher, who reads everything and is thinking about aesthetic categories, um, um, also read and translated. Um, um, several Asian language um, texts. Um, so even in the 
the their study of these um, texts, it's not, this is always not, um, this interchange is not necessarily um, one that's been excavated. But my job is not just to excavate it, but is to try to think of its significance. Um, and so it's not about just analogy, but I think it's kind of about what Walter Benjamin writes of in an essay that's been very influential to comparative literature studies, which is called the task of translation. Uh -huh. So what is what is the task of the translator um, 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 is something that Benjamin asks. And I think part of it is to go against an autocratic monotonal or monophonology. Um, and it does go back to the question of, well, why is only one in, in language allowed to be taught in a classroom, right. you know? So, Going off on a slight tangent here, but I'm, um, here's what I'm thinking that while we're, while we are in a space of comparison and that's always um, simplifying things a little bit. So again, forgive me if the question is a little bit too simplistic, but I'm just wondering, can it, like I'm looking, I guess I'm looking for similarity. So can it be argued that there are aesthetic categories that cross the global South, quote unquote, or, or would you consider even that way of looking at it a European imperialist perspective, if I may call it that? Yeah, I mean, and again, these are very difficult questions. Um, Sorry. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay, they're very provocative, um, but it, but you know, there, there are of course uh, not easy answers. Um, I mean, there's two, um, the aesthetics itself um, is, I mean, to say it's aesthetics only is, uh, there's something purely of the global South and something purely of European aesthetic theory or aesthetic philosophy is kind of to deny that 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 authors of of certain texts of literary modernism, um, you know, of which Melville is a precursor, he's not recognized necessarily as of the modernist period, but the techniques he uses in his texts prefigure um, uh, modernism. Uh, Whitman, who's writing in in the nineteenth century, for instance, um, is often you know, attributed, although there's been research to show that it was much more expansive than just Whitman, um, of, of the development of free verse, right? Of a, 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 a type of poetry. So, but they're also always being translated. Um, so um, they're, you know, they're translating European language texts. Um, there's critical translations of Baudelaire in Latin America, uh, um, Gide, um, and even Ezra Pound is a critical figure here, even though Pound's personal, you know, po politics as a person were not um, nothing to be revered. Um, but but nonetheless, he's 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 looking at um, Chinese script. Um, there's a huge turn to what is, um, you know, why there are Asian languages being translated as part of modernist aesthetics. Um, and so, you know, modernism was something itself that exceeded the boundaries of Europe. Um, and in some ways, I think maybe the way to look at how do we talk about a global South aesthetic uh, being particular is through what the Cuban anthropologists would write of as transculturation, um, as transculturated. 
And I think um, uh, he's using examples of um, even how tobacco is transculturated and certain, he's an anthropologist, so he's looking at certain um, um, cultural practices, but he does have this larger idea of, of transculturation. Um, and so um, maybe that is one way to start thinking about it. Um, but I also think it's, um, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a question about aesthetics itself is important. Um, to this question of citizenship. And I know I keep going back to that. No, but I like that. I like that. Okay, say more. So, you know, I mean, aesthetics, right? So what we understand as, what we recognize as very excessively aesthetic pleasure or aesthetic forms like music, like, you know, theater, when we get lost in the experience of actual, um, of, of reading a text, of being moved by the senses, right? Um, so that prompts what is understood, you know, through a European um, uh, philosophical um, um, school of thought also, right? On aesthetics um, from, from Hegel, Kant, um, you know, um, who are, uh, but about judgment, about how we make judgment, how we act, how we think, um, and how these artistic forms um, can can definitely make us imagine ways of being itself, um, you know, ways of existence that are different from the way that we hear a presidential debate, for instance, um, uh, just to stay rooted in our our day today, which is the day after a presidential debate here. Um, um, and so I think poets, you know, evoke a question, a, a, a way, a phenomenon of being in the world, of thinking about being in the world, that the world itself is un understood as something that is a poetic concept that has not fully been determined. Um, and, you know, as Whitman would say in his one of his lines from his poems, I contain multitudes. So even the I is contained you know, it's contained by the multitudes. Um, and that this relationship between the I and the multitude, which is a huge part also of the um, uh, pre-independence literature and the debates that are going on about pre-independence literature in, um, in South Asia. We know, for instance, of the very famous disagreement between um, Gandhi and um, Tagore, um, on the question of nationalism, but also on the question of literature. Um, they had very different inclinations as readers and writers of literature. Gandhi definitely, Gandhi preferred Tolstoy um, um, and uh, a certain realism. And there are a number of novelists um, in the Anglophone tradition of the pre-independence Anglophone um, uh, novel, such as Mulkraj Anand, who are in conversation with, with Gandhi's um, turn to realism, um, who themselves write very modernist, like untouchable, important uh, modernist texts. Um, uh, you know, Anand's um, um, uh, untouchable is, is not unlike James Joyce's text, um, um, an idea of, 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 you know, a singular perspective um, in a day also. And um, the way in which consciousness itself is represented. Um, but if we think about um, this, um, you know, where I, I, Europe versus um, South Asia, you know, then you, Irish poetry, I mean, where do we situate Irish poetry? Right. It's a huge part of um, what is also part of this network. Um, you know, the reason Tagore even 
is translated um, in Spanish and becomes somewhat of a, um, a, a mobile, um, a, a, you know, very visual character in modernist circles in um, Latin America is because of Yeats, you know, and, and the translation. So, and Irish poets are very much part of the, um, the conversation. So I think it's more a question of, you know, uh, who is taking up the question of world belonging in some ways um, that, and, and how aesthetics itself and literature itself is understood in its own, um, creating its own sense of, um, of geography that doesn't necessarily exist on a map. Thank you for um, giving me so much more food for thought in, in, your, uh, in the answer to my question. And I'm uh, mindful that we're looking towards wrapping up. I have another, <laughs> I have another scorcher for you, which um, uh, I'm sure we could talk about for an hour just on, on this question. But I, I mean, what I love about what you talk about is how it all feels so relevant and yet it's not of quote unquote now. So it, it raises so much, so many questions about how we never mind cross uh, continental or cross regional, or cross linguistic, also cross temporal, if I may call it that. Yes. Um, yeah. So what, what, was any of this predictable, I guess, the situation we find ourselves in, if we look at the world right now, which feels it feels like we're in a very particular moment. Now, I don't know what it will look like 300 years from now, whether it will be just a blip or the start of something or something that hasn't stopped yet 300 years. But to us, I think it feels like we're in a moment, um, very charged, very polarized, very painful. Could we have seen it coming based on all the things that you work on, on, on the text that you work on? Well, I definitely would not say that my, I, my work necessarily is a, a way of saying that I saw it coming. I, I did not. Um, um, uh, but I, you're you know, forgiven. I wasn't trying to put you on the spot as the, <laughs> the soothsayer of the world. I, 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 I mean, I think we have all felt a sense of shock. Yes. In 2020, um, our lives uh, have been fundamentally changed um, um, in many ways. And, you know, again, I am invoking this eye, but it's different for everyone. Um, migrants um, who are detained, um, refugees at borders, um, you know, uh, pe uh, people whose bodies are routinely subject to um, uh, um, uh, racialized violence, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement um, have brought into attention that this this sense of shock that maybe some of us are feeling has is always been, you know, it's a it's a quotidian phenomenon in some ways. Um, so let me just say that um, so that to answer your question, you know, to go back to um, how literature speaks, maybe to uh, anticipating into prophesizing. I mean, I really think it's in some ways, we, are, we have always had the genre of the tragedy being bound to the scene of democracy, you know, in which there's many, you know, we can think of many examples. Um, and so there are um, uh, ways in which we should look back at, um, at the readings of some of these texts and really think about why the aspiration for democracy, it wasn't just for the establishment of a nation, right, called India, mm -hmm. it was for a democracy. 
And so why that democratic kernel has completely been subsumed. And it's the genre of the tragedy, right? That we find it's in mourning, in elegies, it's in lyrics that saw themselves as bound to world citizenship, not just national citizenship, that understood the multilingualism of citizenship that was in the pre-independence era that I think is important to register as um, what could have been, you know, and what maybe can still be, I don't know, but these texts are important reservoirs of ways of thinking about what can feel like a very um, detached, unfeeling world of spectators, you know, in a moment of, of a cruel citizenship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I suppose I also just want to clarify the, the, the question. I don't think that that necessarily um, affects your way of framing the answer, but that this, this quote unquote politically charged moment, I mean, I think I'm specifically referring to the, the, the actual politics of now. I'm very aware of the fact that the, the, the larger politics around citizenship and existence and, and violence, that's not a moment of now, uh, just because some of us have become more aware of it. Have, that has been going on for, for centuries. So, yeah, I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, but, you know, it's not, I mean, if, you, if, if one looks at um, 19th century literary scenes, there's in a way, in, in, there is a way in which Moby Dick even um, cautions us about um, the ways in which um, uh, the, uh, you know, the idea of democracy itself can become co-opted. And, um, and, and, you know, there, there's very famous readings, for instance, of C.L.R. James, who is very much part of the pre-independence world of anti-colonial thinkers and of his reading of um, Moby Dick while he's um, um, incarcerated um, at Ellis, on Ellis Island. And what does he do to assert his rights? Um, he's a non-citizen at that, at that time. Um, he's here as a lecturer, um, scholarly lecturer on Melville. Um, he, he, speak, he launches a um, appeal for his citizenship rights um, and rights just to exist through the reading of Moby Dick, mm. you know? And he says, you know, the entire chorus of Moby Dick is composed of colonized subjects, various figurations of colonized subjects from across the world. And, um, and that is where James sees a kind of potential for um, democracy. Again, this is a reading that occurs um, after the uh, recognized independence, but still where um, many Caribbean um, um, uh, colonies are still not recognized as states and um, several African countries have not yet gained independence. Right. Um, you know, so it's a very, in, there's something in that chorus that CLR James sees um, that I think why looking at pre-independence literature, not just of speaking to its own period, but of speaking to the future, as your question suggests, um, and of speaking to, um, you know, certain ways in which ways of thinking have become so sedimented that we are in the midst of a tragedy still. Um, and, and that is the way in which I would think about how to read and how to how the question of literature and poetry really is part of trying to think our way out of um, what what are the are you know the the tragic situations of um, of um, 
of the pandemic and um, of of Black Lives that the Black Lives Matter movement has brought to light, but also of the crisis of rights in South Asia. Munia Bomek, thank you so much for talking to me today. You've given us so much food for thought, and um, I'm just so glad that you'll be my colleague this year. And uh, hopefully, at some point, we'll be able to actually uh, meet on campus. I have a long every every or not every, but the pod, the people that come as guests on the podcast that are at Stanford right now. I'm like, I hope we can have a coffee before you need to leave again. So we have we have to always think of ways of staying in relation right despite lockdown although you know i i'm having these wonderful conversations on the podcast and these wonderful conversations in in preparation and then uh, so i think we're also learning different ways of uh, of relating but in the meantime thank you um and good luck with your projects at stanford and i do hope you get to uh, go take up your fulbright fellowship before too long Thank you, Lolita. This was a really um, wonderful conversation. And I thank you so much for your generosity in inviting thank me. you. I also want to thank Soam Shiva for creating the intro and the outro music that you're about to hear and Alina Utrata for ironing out any editorial glitches that may have come our way.
Thank you for listening to the SAS Pod, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. Yeah.